From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our bodies are home to billions of microorganisms, some good, some not so good. Scientists call these internal ecosystems the human microbiome, and they're working to understand its role in health and disease. We've just started making these links in some of these diseases we don't even know if the biome is just an innocent bystander or it in fact mediates the disease. But potentially, if we can find a link, we could potentially reverse that. Also on the program, just when can you safely stop taking an antibiotic? And stool transplants. They may not sound pretty, but stool transplantation is playing a growing role in treating some very serious digestive tract diseases. And how to increase your health span, living longer and healthier. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. When we hear the word ecosystem, we usually think about a place on the earth, like a forest ecosystem or a desert ecosystem. It's a place with plants and animals unique to that environment. Though it may be hard to imagine, like our planet, our bodies have ecosystems too. We have on our skin and inside us billions of living organisms. And these bacteria, viruses, fungi, and other organisms carry on in their microbial communities 24 hours a day, usually without our even knowing it. Scientists call this human ecosystem the human microbiome, and what's in our microbiomes and how we interact with it can affect our health and well-being. Here to talk about just what is the human microbiome and how important it is to our health is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Perna Kashyap. Welcome to the program. Very glad to have you here. Thanks, Stacey, and I appreciate the opportunity. This may be a new topic for a lot of people, so if maybe you can get a little background what is the microbiome, and is that related to what people refer to as good bacteria or a healthy gut? Yeah, is it connected to the hip bone or the leg bone? Where is the microbiome? Well, the microbiome, as um, as you previously mentioned, is within us and on us. So it's it just refers to all the bacteria that are present and all the genetic information they carry along with them. So all it refers to is the bacteria along with their genes, uh, which are present on us or within us. So the gut microbiome lives in the gut, and so it's one of the most diverse ecosystems. The skin microbiome lives in the skin, and so on. And when you refer to good bacteria, that's subjective. Everybody would like to think that their bacteria are the good bacteria, and that's true when they're healthy. So, you know, everybody has their own set of good bacteria, but it's when they turn sick, we have to decide if the bacteria had something to do with it or not. And actually, from an interview we did with you, Dr. Tosh, we know that antibiotics can be part of the reason why the good bacteria turn to bad bacteria. Is there anything else? Oh, uh, there's... Uh, effects of diet, there's effect of environment, there's effect of being in the hospital by itself. There's several factors which can cause a change in your gut bacteria. But these are pretty resilient organs. So even though we try to hit them with antibiotics or bad food, they will spring back. It's occasionally when they cannot spring back to their state of health is when we experience problems. Going on that, now that we're learning a lot more about the microbiome, what kinds of health problems are people thinking maybe potentially 
linked to microbiome disturbances. And- it's it's amazing that you know people um, have realized that the bacteria in our gut can not only affect things within the gut but outside of it. And and as you mentioned, it's it's at this point partly speculative in which we see changes in gut bacteria, but we see these changes in diseases like inflammatory bowel disease, which affects the gut, but also in diseases outside like obesity, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, you name it. And there's been changes in the gut bacteria seen in these diseases. Hold um, on, hold on. <laughs> the the gut bacteria, uh, the healthy biome, has to do with a link to obesity. I mean, can, I can see a disease like multiple sclerosis or something like that, but how is there a link to obesity in there? So it's interesting that you bring that up because what we don't realize is of all the food that we eat, everything that we cannot digest, the bacteria have the genes to be able to digest that. So they are a metabolically active organ. And and the better they are at extracting energy, the more energy we can gain from the food we eat. Is this why I hear about a healthy gut from the yogurt ads? You have to have a healthy gut and that's why you have to eat yogurt or so they say. But is that what a healthy gut means? Well, um, a healthy gut is a well-adapted gut. Okay. Um, some people can use the extra calories that the bacteria are providing, and some people may not need those extra calories. So, again, in some people, the healthy gut would be what they have, and, and it's a state of equilibrium. In others, uh, those overactive bacteria may, in fact, be unhealthy. So to go back to the obesity link then, if they don't have a healthy gut or if their microbiome is not as healthy as it could be, that is linking to or helping to cause the obesity in that person? It's like... Anything else, it's probably one of the factors which can influence the outcome there. So we've seen people with genetic predisposition. uh, We've seen environmental factors. We've seen other things which can cause or promote obesity. And the gut bacteria are probably one other player in that game which can contribute to obesity. Yeah, I know that when we're seeing, there's a lot of controversy about the use of antibiotics in animals. And they they know that when you give antibiotics to animals, you're you're presumably altering their microbiome, that that they get bigger. Is that possibly the same thing for humans? And it it possibly is uh, because there's now data at least suggesting that early antibiotic use probably in childhood could lead to later obesity. While, again, this is more from animal studies, but like you mentioned, this has been well known in the veterinary field that if you give antibiotics, you're going to get more bang for your buck in terms of uh, the meat. Oh, that is fascinating. Uh, has anyone looked at, well, s- swapping it between a skinny person or a skinny <laughs> animal and a, and a larger animal? They've actually done it in humans, uh, where they've swapped uh, bacteria from lean donors into, into obese. While this was a pilot and a small number study, it was very interesting that they were able to show improvement in glucose homeostasis. Not weight loss yet, but but definitely an improvement in glucose uh, homeostasis. It changed their blood sugar. And what are you what are you swapping out in the two <laughs> what are you doing in this biome swap here? Well simply took the samples from lean donors and infused them into obese donors. So this is like a stool transplant. Exactly. Thankfully, later this show, we'll have <laughs> yeah. Dr. Sahil Khanna on talking a little bit more about stool transplants. You know, that, I think, you know, why is it that we're only recently thinking about or doing research on the microbiome? And uh, did people not think it was important before, or do we just not have the technology to look into it before? Yeah, people have always known that the bacteria are present and they do important things for us. But like you mentioned, the, we just did not have the technology. I mean, sequencing technology has just risen over the last decade, which we had never imagined. So now we are able to sequence all of these bacteria. The problem is not all of these bacteria can be grown in culture. And so our major limitation was not being able to identify bacteria 
which we can culture. Now with the advent of next generation sequencing technology, we can sequence the bacteria even if we can't culture them. And so our, our capacity to be able to identify the role of these bacteria has just expanded enormously. So I, I have learned that, you you know, a tumor, if someone has cancer, the tumor has got its own genetics, just like the patients has their own genetics. So the biome has its own genetics? Yeah, the biome uh, carries genes which do a lot of things for us. They make vitamins for us. They derive energy. They make short-chain fatty acids for us. So they do a lot of things for us. So you mentioned obesity or multiple sclerosis or just having a healthy microbiome. If it's If it's damaged when you're a child, from too much antibiotics. Can you heal your microbiome or is it just if you break it when you're younger or at some point that you're just a damaged microbiome the rest of your life? Well, that's what most of us and other people are working on is trying to see how we can restore uh, a disturbed microbiome. So that's where the field is leading to in terms of developing therapies now that we realize that the microbiome is important for us. Perna, where do you think this is going to be taking off? There seems to be a fairly new field of study. What do you think this is going to look like in 10, 15 years? I think a, a large proportion of therapeutics are going to be derived from being able to target the, the, back, the gut bacteria or bacteria at other sites. We already see that in the number of new startups which have come focused on the microbiome. And we already see studies in phase two and phase three, which suggest that this is not just all talk. This is going to be one of the new next generation therapies to treat human disease. We've just started making these links, and in some of these diseases, we don't even know if the biome is just an innocent bystander or it, in fact, mediates the disease. But potentially, if we can find a link of how the bacteria are mediating either worsening of the disease or onset of the disease, we could potentially reverse that. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Kashyap. We've been talking about the human microbiome with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Perna Kashyap. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, a listener wants to know whether it's okay to stop taking an antibiotic before the prescribed number of days if you feel better and have no symptoms. Our guest host will have the answer, and we'll also have the latest on the Ebola vaccine. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. During this program, we invite you to send us your questions about health care, and we want to take a few minutes to answer one of those questions. It's a letter, Dr. Tosh. I love it when I get a letter. This is a handwritten piece of stationery. This uh, yes. is quite interesting. It's from a listener who wants to know whether it's okay to stop taking antibiotic medication early. Now, a month ago, I suppose, you were in and we were talking about the overuse of antibiotics and some of the harm that that might be causing. And this is what she wants to know. Is it okay to stop taking antibiotics early before that prescribed number a day is, you know, you get a seven to 10 day prescription. And if there's no more symptoms, is it really okay to stop taking the medication or not? So of course, here to answer this question, <laughs> no one better than Dr. Tosh. He is an infectious disease specialist and has written his share of antibiotic prescriptions, I would suppose. I have. And you know, the, this is of course a complex answer, but <laughs> really looking at it in two different ways. One is that we do know that there's, uh, for many infections, people will feel better probably before they are before the infection is completely gone. And so for that reason it Hopefully. is right, really <laughs> important that people complete the antibiotic prescription that they were given. If it was for five days, that they take the full five days, even though they may be feeling better at three. Now, the other end of this is often prescribers may be giving more antibiotics than perhaps is necessary. 
And so it is a sort of a, a two two ends of this, and that yes, I want for the patients to be taking what is recommended, but the other end is I want uh, providers, physicians, to be prescribing antibiotics perhaps more judiciously. So even though I want the patient to take what was recommended, uh, often I just want the provider to make that recommendation to be really what is the uh, shortest amount that is going to be able to take care of that infection. So why can't the patient make that determination on their own? Right. And part of this is it's tough for patients on their own to decide which of these infections has the highest risk of, of coming back if I stop too early. And so that's really, I you know, depend on the on their physician to make that decision for them because they're, they should be informed of knowing this. But on the other end, those of us who work in infectious diseases and work in called antibiotic stewardship, we really need to get that message out about, well, how much antibiotics should be should physicians be recommending for certain conditions? And that's uh, really on our end trying to get get that information out to physicians. In the letter that Jan wrote, she said her granddaughter had strep throat and she was wondering about how long that antibiotic course should be. So has has that changed over the last 25 to 30 years that, oh, we don't give a 10-day dose now, we get a 5-day dose? Yeah, and in general, we are finding that shorter courses of antibiotics in many cases are going to be uh, as effective. I mean, we used to do two weeks for pneumonia, and it's turning out that we could probably do much less, sometimes down to five days, uh, depending on the situation. And so, uh, in general, we are finding that for many disease states, we can reduce the, the number, the duration of the antibiotics. But again, it's really de- depend on the disease yeah. and really do need to depend on your doctor to give you the best evidence. So it really is more dependent on the disease that you have, the reason you have the antibiotics, than how you are feeling. Exactly. That's interesting. All right. So maybe patients could say to their doctors, do I need to take this for seven to 10 days? Could we, could I get a shorter prescription? Is that something that patients should ask their doctors? What they could also do is if they're feeling much better uh, and still have a lot of antibiotics, they give their provider a call. Is you know I'm feeling a lot better. I got two weeks of this uh, antibiotic for a urinary tract infection. Do I need to take this whole thing? And you know, I think it would be reasonable at that point to contact your doctor. But in general, I'd uh, complete the course that was recommended. All right. And since you're here, I think the first time that I ever met you, you were on the program talking about Ebola with us. So yeah. It's- <laughs> It's been, well, it's been about a year now since we first talked about that. Yeah, and uh, the the height of the Ebola epidemic in West Africa, you know, that's uh, really the height was in, in the fall of uh, 2014, and there's been a tremendous progress. And I should say, people were very frightened. I knew people that called off a trip because they were afraid of being on a plane, and that has something to do with the psychology of hysteria, I suppose, and, and the fear that people have. But Let's talk about um, what has happened in that year. Yeah, you know, since that time, public health officials have really been able to track the people who have Ebola, find out who they've been in contact with, and just through basic epidemiologic procedures, able to reduce the outbreak just by detecting all the cases, finding out the people they've been in contact with. Uh, But there's also more recently, uh, there seems to be uh, a vaccine that, that may be working. In fact, they had to stop the trial early because it was so effective in the people who are in the sort of the test group versus the control group that it was really not ethical to continue to give the control group the, the control medicine, if you will. So that's the placebo, the people that were getting the placebo? Sort of. It mm-hmm. was delayed. Mm-hmm. They, they were getting the, the vaccine later. And so I found out that, wow, people who got the vaccine 
uh, near the time that they were exposed, none of them got Ebola. And so very quickly, uh, the, the vaccine trial, if you will, was stopped. We can still get a lot of information from that. Um, and now anybody who has been exposed to somebody with, with Ebola is, is in West Africa is going to be given this vaccine. That's one of the quotes, I think, that uh, or one of the thoughts that you heard so often back a year ago is, why isn't there a vaccine? And the answer was, hold on, we got to yeah. get there. And so we are to that point now where there is the vaccine. Should everybody just, oh, good, we don't have to worry about Ebola anymore. You know, this is it is very good news for this uh, strain of Ebola. But if we're looking at down the road and really trying to prevent the emergence of emerging infections in developing parts of the world or industrialized parts of the world, it's not just about having the vaccine. The reason the Ebola outbreak happened to begin with is because of underlying issues of uh, public health infrastructure, you know, sanitation, roads. People were really unable to get to hospitals and didn't have clean water, didn't have sort of flushing toilets and these sort of things. And that's the reason the Ebola outbreak happened to begin with and got out of control. And so, yes, we have a vaccine now for this one strain of Ebola. Mind you, it still needs to be licensed and all these things. But that doesn't mean we have to stop all the other work about improving the public health infrastructure in the developing world. Uh, in, we forget, I think, that 11, over 11,000 people died of Ebola. Um, and I think of people maybe focusing on, well, now we can protect us in the United States. But really, uh, in order to prevent the next outbreak, we really do need to help these developing countries to get the kinds of sanitation, vaccination, just basic public health infrastructure that we in some ways take for granted. Have you seen that through the World Health Organization that they are saying we do have to dedicate some efforts more toward the infrastructure? I think there's a lot of people who are going down that road. And it's easy to say, well, we need to put more money into the vaccine or developing hospitals that can treat these things. But in the end, the best use of uh, the resources is really to improve the overall public health infrastructure because you not only help prevent Ebola, but you also help prevent measles and cholera and typhoid and all these other things that are you know, big killers in that part of the world. I just have a question about vaccines. Yeah. So when it comes to the flu vaccine, so is that about the time that it takes to develop a drug like that? It's a little bit different. Okay. Each, each different virus is going to be different. And influenza is its own beast. It's constantly mutating. We really didn't see uh, that much, if you will, mutation of, a, of any of these Ebola strains. Uh, you know, this vaccine will likely work for this Ebola strain if that Ebola strain causes an outbreak in the future. But there are other Ebola strains as well as other viral pathogens that can cause similar disease. All right, I'll leave the medicine up to you and I'll just stick with radio. How's that? Fair enough. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dr. Tosh, for answering our listeners' question and for the Ebola update. No problem. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a stool transplant may not sound as high-tech or as appealing as, say, a heart transplant, but stool transplants are being used to treat some very difficult-to-cure infections. And how to slow the aging process and increase your health span. Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer? You can tweet us at any time at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
vitamin D and teens. I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Dosing obese teens with vitamin D shows no benefits for their heart health or diabetes risk and could actually increase cholesterol and triglycerides. This is according to a Mayo Clinic study on childhood obesity. Here's Dr. Seema Kumar. It was important because we were targeting obese adolescents that are at high risk for diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And these are adolescents that had low vitamin D levels to start with. So I think the study was important in that way. Having said that, the duration was only three months and it remains to be answered if longer duration of administration of vitamin D may have helped more. And have you ever played the game Tetris, the puzzle where you shift blocks around? Well, it could help weaken cravings for drugs, food, and activities such as sex. That's from a study in the journal Addictive Behaviors. Researchers say playing the game could be a way to manage cravings and more study is needed. And a Harvard Johns Hopkins paper shows an increase in the study of yoga as an alternative way to reduce symptoms of disease. They say yoga may add to the health benefits of standard treatment, but they need to learn more about it. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in this week for Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. In today's world of high-tech medicine, transplants for most body parts, from hearts to lungs to hips and knees, have become commonplace. But there's one type of transplant that perhaps not so widely known, which is proving effective in treating some very challenging diseases. Yeah, we're talking about stool transplants, and it is what it sounds like. Stool transplants take fecal matter from a donor and place it in the gut of a recipient. The goal is to establish healthy bacteria in the recipient's digestive system that has been compromised by a serious infection. Here to talk about stool transplants is Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Sahil Khanna. Welcome to the program, Dr. Khanna. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure being here. You know, we had Purna Keshap here earlier and uh, really setting us up, talking about the, the microbiome. And you're on the other end of things, sort of the, <laughs> the business end of things, if you will, actually replacing the microbiome or redoing the, the fecal microbiome. Flora, when we're talking about these stool transplants, what kind of diseases have been shown to be useful for? So the one disease that has been shown to be the most useful for is an infection of the intestines called Clostridium difficile or C. difficile infection. It's also more popularly known as C. diff. It was a bacteria that was first thought to be grown in the lab in 1935 and named Clostridium difficile because it was difficult to culture in the lab. And now the name still holds true because it's very difficult to treat in, in a lot of situations. So how do patients get C. diff? We all harbor a bacteria in our colons, probably about 500 different kinds of bacteria, anywhere between 100 trillion bacterial cells harbor in our colons. It's like a good army of bacteria that protects us from the bad pathogens. When patients take antibiotics, up to 1 in 20 of those can get an infection called Clostridium difficile or C. diff because those antibiotics destroy the good flora or the healthy microbiome in the colons. That's where one picks up C. diff from their environment and the C. diff tends to stay in the colon, produce toxins and cause diarrhea. Now, I know previously we would try to treat these C. diff infections with more antibiotics. Uh, how successful is that? That's a very good question. When we get an infection that's due to antibiotics, our first line is actually to treat the antibiotics. 
about 80% of people get rid of this infection forever just with one course of antibiotics. And about 95% probably get rid of it with more than one course of antibiotics. But there's about a 5-odd percent patient population that is not able to get rid of this infection with just antibiotics because guess what? The antibiotics that are used to treat C. diff also kill the good microflora or the good bacteria in the colon. Gotcha. Is that where you come in? That's where I see a lot of patients in my clinic who've had this infection called C. diff three or more times, and the risk of this infection coming back once we stop their treatment is 60% or higher. And the only way to get rid of this infection to come back is to replace their good bacteria with somebody else's, a procedure called stool transplant or fecal transplant. How did this idea ever come into somebody's mind to do a stool transplant? So it goes back to the year 1958, where we didn't even know C. diff was a cause of human diarrhea, but there were four reports of fecal transplantation performed by a surgeon for a condition called pseudomembranous colitis. We now know that pseudomembranous colitis is caused due to C. diff, mm. but at that time, he had an idea that maybe if I give them give these patients some good bacteria, I should be able to get rid of this. It's been a long time since 1958, though. How come so many people have never even heard of a stool transplant? until I certainly hadn't until maybe a year ago. That is correct. So C. diff was first thought to be a cause of human diarrhea in 1978. And in the first 10, 15 years of knowing C. diff, it wasn't that big of a medical problem. The incidence wasn't that high, and it wasn't causing so much recurrence as it is now. Oh. I think with our population aging having more other medical illnesses and getting more antibiotics, this tends to become a bigger problem. In addition, the bacteria itself is becoming stronger and it's actually mutated into forms that produces more toxins. So the bacteria is becoming smarter and stronger and our defenses against the bacteria are probably going lower. So with these as a more difficult and more prevalent C. diff infections, and you're saying that if someone has it over and over again, it's really hard to get rid of, how effective is this, you know, fecal transplantation? Fecal transplantation is surprisingly more than 90 to 95% effective oh in getting rid of infection forever in most patients. In clinical series, in our experience, and also in clinical trials published uh, from Europe and other places in the world, by giving one or more than one fecal transplant, you're able to get rid of this infection 95% of the times. So that is tremendous. Now, when we're talking about fecal transplant, I can imagine uh, people listening thinking, wow, that's great, but that's gross. And they should probably think, I better hurry up and finish my breakfast because right. this is about to get to a place I don't want to hear. But how exactly do you perform a fecal transplant? The first step is one has to find a donor to be able to donate stool. Just like there are blood donors, there are also stool donors that are out there. How do you know that their stool or their fecal matter is healthy? It's tested before it goes in? Absolutely. So donors for fecal transplant need to be young, healthy people who have minimal medical conditions, almost have no medications on their list, and have not had any other illnesses like allergies, irritable bowel syndrome, inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease. We screen them for a whole battery of infections and other diseases that can be associated with altered flora. Simple diseases like diabetes, being overweight, depression are all associated with altered flora. So somebody who has to be a stool donor has to be pristinely healthy. We check them for infections in their blood. They get screened for HIV, chronic hepatitis, syphilis, and all infections that can potentially be transmitted. 
In addition, we screen their stool for infections, including Clostridium difficile and other things that could be infections in one person but colonize another person. So there's a battery of tests that these donors undergo, including a rigorous history and physical examination before they can become a stool donor. Wow. That is, uh, seems, seems uh, quite extensive. <laughs> but I need to know. I am just how do how do they how do they do this? How does the patient get the stool inside of them? What do you do? So there are many ways to do that, and the most proven uh, and commonly used way is with a colonoscopy. Okay. So the way it is done is once one identifies somebody to be a donor, and the donor passes all the screening tests, and we have the donors collect stool in a clean stool collection container. The stool collection container is then brought to the laboratory. And there are two ways to process it. One way to process it to use it, what we call as fresh, where we process the stool, we blend it. In our system, we use a blender called a stomacher, and we process the stool in normal saline, and it's kept on ice and can be used within six hours of its processing. There is another way that we do here at Mayo Clinic where we have the ability to have a frozen stool bank. We process the stool anaerobically, meaning we preserve most of the bacteria in the stool, and we add some preservatives that we can freeze the stool for a period of up to six months. And if we have a patient who needs a fecal transplant, we take the fr- stool out of the freezer and are able to use it. The patients who undergo the fecal transplant in our s- setting have to undergo a preparation for a colonoscopy. It's like any other colonoscopy somebody would have. And during the colonoscopy, we put in the processed stool into their cecum. That's the last part of the colon where the small and large intestine connect with each other. Our experience, other people's experience has shown that this is, as I said, more than 90 to 95% effective, but most people get better within one to three days and they don't get the infection back again. That's tremendous. And does insurance cover this? Most insurance companies do not have a problem covering this. Very rarely we have to do a prior authorization letter with insurance companies. Studies have shown that actually fecal transplant is probably more cost effective than using antibiotics over and over again to treat this infection. So even though the insurance companies might be on board, how about the patients? How do they feel about getting donor stool? This infection tends to be so debilitating, it tends to people to lose their jobs because they can't go back to work and function there. It makes people hospitalized. And this is not like your usual run-of-the-mill diarrhea that somebody gets from eating something bad from the supermarket. This diarrhea really debilitates people. And the acceptance for fecal transplant actually has been really good. Very rarely one would see somebody who has an ick factor with a fecal transplant, but on the flip side, it's ickier to have diarrhea all day, all night long, and have abdominal pain. And when you hear that 90 to 95% success rate, that has to turn them around pretty quickly. That does. And most patients actually come seeking fecal transplant when they've had this infection a few times. And where is this going in the future? In the future, there are lots of different ways of doing fecal transplants that are going to be coming. There are enemas that will be studied, and there is a pill form that is being studied right now, which could replace the colonoscopy route for fecal transplants. Wow. We've been talking about stool transplants with Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Sahil Khanna. Thanks for being on the program with us today, Dr. Khanna. Thank you very much for having me over. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, increasing your health span can be just as important as increasing your lifespan. We hear from an expert on slowing the aging process. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh, sitting in for Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McRae. Live long and prosper. Whether you're a Trekkie or not, you probably recognize that quote 
from Star Trek's Dr. Spock. We'd all like to live long and prosper, but when it comes to the longevity part, our bodies don't always cooperate. Aging involves a number of complicated processes, among them the loss of muscle mass. Researchers are examining ways in which to preserve muscle mass and in turn delay the aging process. The goal may not be increased lifespan, but it could be an increased health span. Here to talk about increasing your health span is Dr. Nathan Labrasser. Dr. Labrasser does research on the aging process and is a specialist in physical medicine rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Labrasser. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I was a little bit curious about uh, lifespan and health span. Can you explain the difference between the two to me? Yeah, I certainly can. So lifespan is actually how long we, we live. Our health span is the number of active, health of and productive years that are not burdened by disability, frailty, or chronic disease. So our interest is really extending those numbers of healthy and active years that we have in front of us. Over the course of 100 years, we've doubled human life expectancy. 100 years. So it's a fact that we often overlook and, you know, we think more about our, our future progress. But even in the last 100 years, thanks to work like Dr. Tosh has done, that uh, vaccines and antibiotics have had a market effect. Clean drinking water has had a market effect. But now we're all living until our 70s and our 80s, and we're wondering what's next. And the big piece of this is living healthier. So not just adding uh, years to life, but life to our years. That's really the goal. Is this a new concept? Is this uh, sort of a, a relatively new field of study? It is. It's a new term. I would say it's been around for several years now, but really was just within the confines of our discipline. It's really gained traction, and part of this is because of even government efforts to understand the link between aging and disease. We don't think about conditions like Alzheimer's disease when we're in our 20s or our 30s or cardiovascular disease when we're that young, but it's really something that we worry about as we get older. So understanding the fundamental links between the aging process and chronic disease is really what we focused on to extend health span, not to live in until we're 120 and feel like we're 120, but to live full, healthy, productive lives. The financial implications of population aging are huge, right? So between 1946 and 1964, 75 million Americans were born in this country. So that means in 2011, the first wave of baby boomers started hitting the shores, the silver tsunami that we refer mm -hmm. to. And 11,000 persons every day for the next 20 years will continue to turn the age of 65. So it has clear financial implications. I think the other groups that are hard, uh, largely affected by this that are often overlooked are the caregivers, the individuals, the spouses, the children that are caring for the older persons with chronic disease and disability that we really need to think about as well. So um, we often think about successful interventions impacting not just the patient or the person, but their caregiver, us as an institution, the provider, and the payer. So there's a lot of different angles here to this story. And I can see aging being somewhat like uh, the weather, right? Everyone talks about it, but uh, no one does anything about it. Uh, so, but what can you do about about the aging process? What, have we, what are we learning? Yeah, I think it's fascinating that... Um you know, you're starting to see advertisements pop up in the back of every magazine that you read about, here's the miracle cure, the fountain of youth that you can chase after. And I think we were often criticized for chasing something that was somewhat hard to describe. What is aging? We all can recognize it when we see it, but ask someone to put that into words. What is the aging process? And over the past several years, we've started to learn more and more about this kind of accumulation of cellular and molecular damage that we can actually identify and visualize and, and link to the emergence of aging and age-related diseases. So that's what aging is, just because I'm the layperson over yeah. here. Aging is that your cells, when they duplicate or they don't do it as well, the older you get, is that the deal? That's part of it. Part of it is kind of the impaired ability to regenerate and rejuvenate, but part of it is just the accumulation of this damage, which may be damaged proteins or damaged nucleic acids in our body that are used to kind of really make our body operate and function the way it should. 
And as we accumulate more and more damage, that's just not a reflection of aging, but that's really the underpinnings of age-related diseases. And that's what we're really starting to understand incredibly well. So as I said, it was really science fiction. You can't do anything about that process. But what we've done in the past several years is not only understand that process, but we've started to intervene. So in 2009 was the first big breakthrough where someone introduced a drug into an aging mouse and showed that it could extend health span and lifespan. And that was really the first evidence that, boy, something's really possible here. We could have a make a difference. Wow, so the, the mouse was spinning that wheel for longer? You got it. You got it. It was, uh, you know, reading the newspaper and, uh, you know, running marathons. So. so, okay, the mouse is doing really great. How how long until the humans get to start yeah, using yeah. that drug? Great great news for mice so far. <laughs> That's right. That's true. That's true. So, so the good news is it's no longer science fiction, and we're now starting to think about what are the trials that we can do to disrupt this process. Mayo Clinic is probably best known for its breakthroughs in this area called cellular senescence. And this is a process where cells, in fact, lose the ability to divide. So what you kind of reference, Tracy, is mm-hmm. that um, cell, cells get damaged and they can no longer divide and, and repair tissues and, and uh, reconstitute tissues to do their job. But when these cells um, go bad and they start to accumulate, they're not just bad in and of themselves, but they make the surrounding uh, soil toxic. So they're the rotten apples that spoil the cart. And what happens then is that these rotten apples start to disrupt the function and the structure of the surrounding cells, and ultimately that can lead to a disease process. So this process is called senescence. It was really a process that evolved to protect us against cancer, protecting against the aberrant growth of cells and the growth of tumors and their migration. And that's a really good thing until we get to our reproductive ages. But what we've learned is as we get older, those cells become very dangerous and toxic and lead to diseases. So we showed in an animal model, if we clear those cells First, we showed with genetic strategies that we markedly improve the health of the animal. We prevent things like cataracts and hunching of the back and loss of muscle and loss of healthy fat and can prevent disease processes. And more recently, just a few months ago, we published kind of the first story using drugs to do that same process. So we're, we're getting close. The challenge of getting into humans is we can't study aging. We can't do a 40-year study where we take every 40-year-old and give them a drug to delay the aging process and see how they look at 80. But we need to pick specific conditions that this process may be very active in and treat patients with that condition to see if it makes a difference. Straight out of the gate, if I'm in the scientist in charge, it would be my mind would be one of the things I want because if I've got a healthy body, that's great and all. But if I go 30 years of my life and don't know anybody around me, that's not very good. It's not very good. But I think where we failed as um, a field of aging is that we've put individuals in silos to study Alzheimer's disease, which is incredibly important. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. And we've put people in silos to study diabetes, cardiovascular disease, osteoporosis, all these conditions of aging that we're all very familiar with. But then we attack them one at a time. We do this work in silos. The truth is, is that there's a fundamental connection between these diseases. So even if we can resolve Alzheimer's disease, two years later, you're going to die from cardiovascular disease mm-hmm. or suffer from an osteoporotic fracture. So if we attack them all as a group and delay them all as a group, we can markedly extend health span and compress that period of morbidity at the end of the life to a very short period of time. With, uh, you know, you're saying there's some new drugs coming in. What can people do now? Are there things that we are doing naturally that might, uh, say, worsen our health span or things that we can do to, to lengthen it? Oh, please don't say I have to do sit-ups. <laughs> well, I won't say sit-ups. <laughs> okay. But if I can make one important comment for the audience, it is without question that sitting 
is the new smoking. We've engineered physical activity out of life, but we need to move more. Exercise is a powerful drug. It is a drug. It's medicine that really counters the effects of aging on multiple levels. It's really profound. I think the other thing that we're facing is nutrient excess. Just the, the availability of calorie-dense lack of nutritious food is really a challenge that we're facing. So as much as we talk, started this conversation about people living longer, we may see the first dip in human life expectancy because of the obesity epidemic. People are better educated today. That's in our favor. So there's clear links between education and conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Um, but, yeah, if, if there's kind of three take-home messages, you know, exercise, diet, and uh, keep your brain active and healthy. All right. Thank you. We've been talking about ways to delay the aging process and increase health span with Dr. Nathan Labrasser. Dr. Labrasser does uh, research on aging and is a specialist in physical medicine rehabilitation at Mayo Clinic. Thank you for being on the program, Dr. Lebrasser. My pleasure. Thanks so much. And thank you, Dr. Tosh, for sitting in this week for Dr. Shives. Happy to do it. That's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We'll be answering your question in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman. Our social media editor is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Pratish Tosh. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.